chapter 28 and uh, that's the last chapter in case anyone's a bit confused why it says Mark afterwards but uh, that's the last chapter in the uh, Gospel of Matthew and um, I, I've really enjoyed going through the Gospel of Matthew I think it's been great um, just yeah been great going through it verse by verse um, I really enjoy these Bible studies um, we, we, um, we're finishing up this week so we'll be doing something else from next week uh, last week we, we did Matthew 27 and as kind of has been, you know, the way I've been doing things, just to give you a reminder of what happened. Um, you can all get a bit kind of blurred into one, but uh, this way you should, hopefully, with these little reminders, it just helps you to remember what's where in all the different chapters of, of the Bible studies we go through. Uh, Matthew 27, we, we did part two last week, and we looked in depth at Simon the Cyrenian, um, how he was compelled to bear Jesus' cross. We're talking about how, you know, yeah, they compelled him, but these wicked people should compel us to bear Jesus' cross as well, shouldn't they? And we looked at that, and we looked in depth at him and his sons, and um, Mark's Gospel sp specifically mentions his sons Rufus and Alexander. For me, there's a reason for that. Uh, we looked at that, and, and we saw more prophecy being fulfilled after that with Jesus' clothes being parted, them drawing lots to, to, for his vesture or coat, because it was all kind of, you know, one, you know, one bit of fabric throughout, wasn't it? And the vesture being a coat, we looked at kind of the comparison in John's Gospel, uh, definitely wasn't some sort of strange dress-like uh, thing. So uh, we, we saw that, and then we saw the, the people repeating the lies encouraged by the chief priests, elders and scribes. So they made up these lies, or at least these lies that they encouraged, these false witnesses to say, and then the people just were repeating them, weren't they? And lies just spread, don't they? You make a little bit of dishonesty and people just start spreading it. Um, and, and, and after that, the, the chief priests and scribes then mocking and tempting him as well, weren't they? Or between all these people, if you're the king of Israel, come down from the cross and all that sort of stuff. And it was a temptation, wasn't it, as well? Um, which he resisted, as always. Uh, we saw how the, th how the thieves, plural, did the same thing, putting words in his mouth. You know, that's what it said, didn't it? Casting between his teeth. But, but then Luke's gospel filled this gap, didn't it? Where from doing that, we then see that one of them then puts their faith on him, um, which shows that, look, people can mock the Lord, can, you know, be pretty blasphemous and say some pretty bad things, but still get saved. Yeah, and this thief got saved. Um, there was then this historical darkness over the whole earth, and we just looked briefly at that as well. Uh, and then Jesus called out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And for me, it was just pointing us to Psalm 22. It was a direct quote of Psalm 22, which not only showed out it was all prophecy being fulfilled, but reminded us of the purpose, wasn't it? And Psalm 22, verse 31 said, they shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born, that he hath done this. And Jesus died, and there were then signs and wonders an earthquake, and we're told of the bodies of saints arising out of the graves and appearing unto many, and this was after his resurrection, so it was saying that this, was, this happened, you know, as well. And, and, you know, it's a sort of precursor, a taste of what is to come, thanks to Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Hence, it was after his resurrection, I think, as well. And then we saw those strong women that were still there, the ones that had been ministering unto Jesus Christ, yeah, and these were strong women, they were, you know, still there, they were still close by, um, my daughter reminded me afterwards that, in fact, uh, John was there, wasn't he, because he is told in John's Gospel, you know, behold thy mother, but he's not mentioned here, so maybe he was there briefly, but the rest of them don't seem to be about, do they, um, the, the, you know, the, these women are there, they're ministering, they're close by, and they're a great example, aren't they? And then we see uh, the rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, that willingly gave of his provision to the cause of Christ, talked about that. And then finally, um, in verse 63, the chief priests and Pharisees going to Pilate. So verse 63, it said, saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Bear in mind they were mocking him about rebuilding the temple in three days and using this as a kind of attack on him, yet they know exactly what he was talking about, don't they? Yeah, and wicked people know. They know the truth. Yeah, and, and sometimes we think, oh, this person, they know too much to be wicked. They know too much to be a bad person. No, a lot, of, a lot of bad people know a lot. They just reject it, yeah? Verse 64 says, Command, therefore, that the sepulchre be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say unto the people, he is risen from the dead, so the last error shall be worse than the first. 
Pilate said unto them, Ye have a watch, go your way, make it as sure as ye can. So they went and made the sepulchre sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. Basically, they tried to prevent the resurrection. And I was thinking, yeah, another way they do that nowadays, by preventing at least acknowledging of the resurrection, is like bunnies and eggs and stuff. <laughs> and they just changed it to just a load of old nonsense. It's like some sort of Easter. When you say change, maybe some claim it's been merged with this sort of pagan you know, sort of Easter fertility thing, but whatever it is, nowadays is there much mention of Jesus Christ? Hardly any at all. Um, okay, we're going to continue now. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 1, which reads, In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn towards the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulchre. I'd like to pray before we continue. Father, thank you for this great chapter of the Bible, this ending chapter of what is a great gospel, great opening, um, opening book to the New Testament. Um, I pray that, you know, we'll remember some of the kind of things that, that you want each and every one of us to take home from this. There's so many topics that, have, that we've, we've looked at throughout this, uh, this book of the Bible. I, I pray that everyone will really, you know, let some of these words go into their heart. And, and you know, finalising now with this final chapter, um, Matthew chapter 28, help me to preach this accurately now and, and clearly and boldly. And for people to just, again, just just take home with them those those things that they really need to hear today, Lord. Um, we, we, I pray that you just fill me with your spirit now. Um, help everyone to have attentive ears in Jesus' name, full of this. Amen. I'm just thinking there, uh, that Matthew 27, even just the second half, there's a lot of topics there, weren't there? I mean, I know, you know, some, some maybe, and, and for good reason, probably maybe we'll just hit one main topic in a Bible study, maybe two. I've been doing a bit more of a scattergun approach. I want to try and hit each verse, and I hope for many that they go away with something from it, but I appreciate that sometimes there's a lot of stuff to remember as well that we've kind of gone into. Um, However, that's the way I, I like to do these. That's the way I like to do things. But um, we're going to kind of continue to do that with Matthew 28. And, and uh, here we, we saw verse 1 that the, the, uh, it says, In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week. What's the first day of the week? Sunday. And Jesus Christ rose on the Sunday, which is one of the reasons that we meet on a Sunday as well, by the way. Um, and, and remember that the Hebrew day begins at 6 p.m. So that Sunday was getting to dawn, that's what it's saying. It's not saying the Sunday's about to start, the Sunday was coming to dawn. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, came to the sepulchre. And, well, here's an interesting thing. What, what time were these that, that ministered unto Christ? Remember, they were described, we, we were just talking about what great examples they were to all of us, not just to the women, to everyone. They're great, great examples of everyone because they're the ones that are there. They're the ones coming to minister. They're the ones coming with the things to maybe, in essence, freshen up the body or whatever else. They want to carry on ministering to even Jesus Christ's dead, dead body. Well, it said as it began to dawn towards the first day. So... Well, I had a look at this. Sunrise in Israel at this time of the year is around 6.30 a.m. So they were coming as it began to dawn around this sort of 6.30 a.m. That's when they're turning up. And that's a good time of the day to be looking towards the Lord, isn't it? That's a good time of day to be coming to, to minister unto the Lord. That's a good time of day to just be looking for the Lord, to thinking about the Lord first thing in the morning, isn't it? Yeah, and I, I, I'm trying to, you know, I'll constantly encourage people from this church uh, that, look, first thing in the morning is the time you should be looking to the Lord, yeah? Uh, and for many reasons, Psalm 143, you don't have to turn there, verse 8 says, cause me to hear thy loving kindness in the morning. For in thee do I trust, cause me to know the way wherein I should walk. For I lift up my soul unto thee. So we hear his loving kindness, we're shown the way wherein we should walk through the word of God, don't we? Okay, it's through the word of God. Yeah, we should be praying to the Lord in the morning, but we should be taking the word of God in the morning. Look, and I, I appreciate different people have different routines and maybe get the bulk of their Bible reading maybe in the evening, in the afternoon, whatever it is. But I would say when you first wake up, that that's a good time to be opening your Bible and, and looking at the Bible. And whether it's only just to get a little bit in or whether you can get your whole Bible reading in, I would encourage it to be your whole Bible reading. For me, when I open my eyes in the morning, first thing I do is reach for the word of God. And, and look, why not? Why wouldn't I do that? You know, that for me then, my, my day is being shaped already. First thing I'm doing is I'm looking for the Lord's loving kindness. And first thing I do is I'm basically pulling out that A to Z. I'm pulling out that street atlas. I'm pulling out that, that map to, to show me the way I should be walking in first thing in the morning. You go, oh, well, I don't necessarily get that when I'm reading through this book or that book. But you know what? Starting with the word of God, doesn't matter whether, you, whether you're getting something directly applicable to your day or not. It's just the best way to start your day, isn't it? 
And, and, and these ladies are up early doors in the morning looking for the Lord or at least ministering unto the Lord. And some say, well, yeah, but I have to go to work. Yeah, I have to go to work. I can't, well, get up earlier then. Get up earlier. Set your alarm earlier. I mean, it's not, it's not really hard, is it? You know, get up earlier and look, look to the Lord first thing in the morning. Uh, and here's another thing as well. Did the Marys get up early every other day of the week and then have a little line on the Sunday? Because that's kind of, that's what we're kind of encouraged in this world, aren't we? Sunday's lying day. So, they, so did they get up every other day early and then on the Sunday it's like, well, they turned up around 11 o'clock once said, you know, had a little relax and maybe had, had, you know, a slow breakfast and everything else. They were up at the crack of dawn on the Lord's Day, weren't they? Crack of dawn on that first resurrection Sunday, really looking to at least minister unto the Lord, looking to do things, looking for the Lord, thinking about the Lord. Yeah, maybe they weren't looking for the resurrection, but they were there going to minister unto the Lord, thinking about God, yeah? Crack of dawn, not swanning into God's house after the service has started. Because a lot of people do that, don't they? Never ceases to amaze me. I mean, you've got, you've got church at what's not really an unreasonable time, is it? I mean, it's 10.30 a.m. on a Sunday. And by the way, I'm not talking about Thursday, okay? So in case, uh, you know, those that were stuck in traffic tonight. Look, uh, sorry, Wednesday. It's Wednesday, isn't it? I'm losing count. It's, it's been a long couple of weeks. All right. Okay, I'm not talking about that Wednesday night, that midweek service, okay? Because, look, for, for many, it's hard to even get here, okay? It's in the evening, it's after work. Many live at a, a distance, many travel for that. But Sunday morning, when the roads are dead, Sunday morning, when no one I don't think in this church is up working and trying to rush here after work, Sunday morning, surely there is no excuse to be late. Now, every blue moon, we have some people in our church that get trains from all over the different sides of the country and to be honest it doesn't seem to matter when you try and come out here from anywhere else you need, seem to need to go into central London anyway there doesn't seem to be many direct trains I appreciate that yeah I understand that and for some look that can be tough yeah but but those of us that drive and for those that do get the train unless there's issues with the trains as we know our our, our, our UK train system isn't quite the uh you know, what, what it maybe should be. It's not quite as reliable as they'd like to make out when they're encouraging everyone to ditch their cars and pay through the nose to have a car and rely on their public transport system, which seems to be a complete joke. However, for most people, 10.30 on a Sunday is doable, isn't it? And, and by the way, you don't have to cut it fine, yeah? I mean, we, we say, come on in from 10 o'clock. If you got here earlier, we don't lock you out either. You know, we usually have a try and have an usher on the door from 9.45. You know, that's not a bad window, is it? And look, it's not, it's not early, is it? 10.30, but what are, these, what are these ladies doing? Well, they're up there early. They're 6.30 a.m. Maybe we should do that. Church at 6.30 on a Sunday. See how popular that would be, right? It's 10.30, yeah, 10.30. And you'd be amazed, yeah, because we've had this obviously for, and I've been in many churches where you see the same thing, where literally people are like just wandering in, sometimes like 10, 15, 20 minutes after the service starts. Now, there's a way of wandering in, isn't there? Yeah? There's a way of wandering into church. You can come in with a slightly apologetic look. Maybe there's been a reason. And some people have some good excuses. I know that we have people maybe, you know, where they've got like, disability in the family and sometimes there can be things you can't even expect that might happen in the morning but then there are some and we had this obviously at the last building as well who would literally walk in yeah saunter in and go up to the coffee machine and start making themselves coffee 15 minutes into the service that's not respect for god though is it that's not respect for god's house that is weird isn't it that's weird and and like i said it's not like we're meeting as it began to dawn here and you know what, yeah, if I can get seven of us here without fail between 9 and 9.30 on a Sunday from as far as an hour and a half away at the first building when I lived at my previous house to an hour to 45 minutes, I, I, something tells me everyone else can get here on time, right? Yeah, and, and look, most people here, look, I'm not, I'm not picking anyone who's sitting in this room anyway, yeah, but point being, there are people out there like this, yeah, just, it's just, just get into church, yeah? get into church now and again you're going to have an issue and do you know how we did it over the last couple of years yeah this great invention called an alarm clock amazing now some of you might not have heard about this yeah or maybe we've got some watchers out there some listeners out there haven't heard of this alarm. it's great yeah you put the time in 
yeah? You don't even have to rely on the electricity anymore. Or in the old days, you might have the wind-up as a backup, yeah? Put the time in the alarm clock, set the alarm, give yourself enough time to get up. And, and you know what? And again, this isn't because of myself, yeah? This isn't trying to big myself up, because I know there are many people out there who do a lot more for God than me. But you know what? I've always set my alarm to do in a Sunday morning. Is get up early enough to read my Bible first as well. I'm not like, well, I'm coming to church, don't need my Bible. No, I set my alarm, get up, read my Bible for half an hour, pray to the Lord, and then start getting ready and come to church. You know what? We've always got here on time. So, look, and we don't live around the corner either. Well, we kind of do now, okay? But we didn't used to. So now, now we're going to be late every week. <laughs> point being, point being, okay? If, you, if you're early enough to get up to read his word, then you can seek him before you even get to his house, can't you? And that's what I want to encourage everyone in this church to do. It's not so that I can be anything special. It's I want everyone else to do the same. To take the things of God seriously, right? And, and something tells me that if you come into church late, week in, week out, you're not taking the things of God seriously. Now, you want to be a serious man of God, get into church on time, right? Get into church on time, get your family in church on time, take the things of God seriously, right? Okay, and that's what we should all be aiming for. And for some, some here might maybe have a problem with this. And you know what the easiest thing to do is just aim for even earlier. Some of us, we, we gauge it wrong, we time it wrong for whatever reason. I used to be terrible for this, right? I used to try and fit in as much as I possibly could in that short amount of time, well, if I get up, I could just get that little bit extra sleep, or maybe I could get in this before getting that. But when it comes to God, I don't want to be late for God. I don't want to come in and having missed two hymns. I don't want to come in and having missed some of the prayers and some of the meeting and greeting of God's people, because what, for the sake of a bit of extra sleep? And you know what, and the people that, that, that will come into church regularly late, I'll tell you what they're not doing first thing in the morning is reading their Bibles. No chance. And you know that. So anyway, point being, here, what do the ladies do? They're up at 6.30am looking for the Lord. And do you know what happens when you put God first? Okay? Because ultimately you're showing that you're putting God first. Yeah? When you're there on time, you're there early for church, week in, week out, you're putting God first. Well, look at verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. You experience God doing great things. That's what happens. You're up early, you're putting God first, you experience God doing great things. You'll get those who are like, I just don't know why God's not doing this, not answering my prayers. I'm rubbing the lamp and he's just not, what, he's not giving me what I'm wishing for. You know, that's the sort of attitude you see out there. But is he really first in your life? Is he? Or is he your genie that's gathering dust most of the week? Because that's what happens with a lot, isn't it? It's like God's gathering dust in at least their so-called version of God in his lamp somewhere where they're waiting to rub, you know, when things go badly. And I just can't work out why things aren't going well for me. It's like, put God first, yeah? Put God first, get up early, read your Bible, pray to God, get to church on time, put the things of God first, right? And, and here, here, those ladies, those great examples that we saw, and especially now we're talking about these two, Mary's experienced a great earthquake, an angel rolled the great sealed stone from the door. And although it seems that they didn't necessarily see this angel roll it back when you look compared to the other Gospels, Mary Magdalene had gone to tell the disciples, it seems. Peter and John run there, see the empty tomb and leave, okay? So, again, when you compare it with the other Gospels, that seems to be what happens, that they kind of come there. Then Mary Magdalene goes. She's with Mary, the mother of Jesus here. She then goes off. The, the women then stayed after they've come and gone, Peter and John, that we see in John's Gospel, and see the angels. And here in Matthew's Gospel, we see one angel focused on. And... Just a quick point on this as well. The stone is described in Mark 16, 4 as very great, isn't it? This angel of the Lord was able to roll it, yeah? And angels, including fallen angels, clearly have a lot of power, don't they? Yeah? And, and we need that whole armour of God, don't we? Yeah? We need that spiritual protection. There's a sermon. There's a sermon series there, isn't there? We need that spiritual protection, don't we? Because, look, we, we can't, we, you can't deal with these sorts of, you can't deal with fallen angels without the protection that God gives you, okay? They have a lot of power. They, they just roll back the stone, yeah? Look, verse 3 says, His countenance was like lightning, and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men, okay? As dead men, they didn't die. Okay, did, do you think that the, this, this angel looked like a cuddly baby with wings? 
Anyone think that? No? Like ch a cuddly chubby baby with wings. <laughs> that's, that's the stuff they have out there, isn't it? I've seen little, like, weird little graven images of these in gardens and things. Or, or, or perhaps a long-haired, queer-looking model. Do you think that the angel looked like that? I don't think so. He was scary-looking. His face was as lightning. It was like lightning. His countenance was like lightning. He was so scary that these soldiers, these are soldiers of the high priests, these are the sort of soldiers that get their ears cut off and stuff, by Simon Peter, they seem to shake and faint. Okay, that's what it's saying. They became as dead men. It looks like they passed out from the fear. I've been scared before. I've never passed out because of fear. That sounds pretty scary, right? And the angel answered, said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. So, as he said... We, we've seen this multiple times in the gospel, haven't we? Okay, multiple times in this gospel alone. Turn to Matthew 16, because we see in Matthew 16 and verse 21, one of the many times he says this, that he's going to rise again the third day. Matthew 16 and, 20, and verse 21 says this. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. So he's showing his disciples, he's telling them that he'll be raised again the third day, yeah? Pretty clear there, Matthew 17. Over to the next chapter in verse 22. He says the same thing, and while they abode, um, while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, the Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men. They shall kill him, and the third day he shall be raised again. And they were exceeding sorry. Okay, so he explains that in Galilee. And then in Matthew 20 and verse 17, we see in Jesus, uh, Matthew 20 and verse 17, it says, And Jesus going up to Jerusalem took the twelve disciples apart in the way and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and he shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him, and the third day he shall rise again. The third day he shall rise again. He made it clear, didn't he? And not only did he make it clear, but Jesus Christ fulfilled his own prophecy. He's the only one that said he was going to rise again and did rise again. Yeah? He, he, he fulfilled that prophecy. So why were they not there the third day with the banner and the balloons and the Easter eggs? Yeah? Why weren't they? Why weren't they there kind of, da-da, you know, we knew it was going to come, you know, the trumpets came out and everything else. Because during the trials of life, the stress, the heartbreak, we often forget God's word, don't we? Don't we all? Every single one of us here. Because you can look at this and go, why did they not get that? Because we all don't get it when we start going through stress. And they'd gone through some stress there. Okay? They'd watch the Lord Jesus Christ get arrested, get killed. They, they went through some heartbreak. They went through some fear. They went through all this sort of stuff that many of us will go through in some measure or other in our lives. And, and often we then forget the promises of God, don't we? We forget what he says he's going to do. His promise is not to leave or forsake us. How often will many of us here forget those promises? Not to be shocked when we shall face perse persecution, because he did say, you shall face persecution, didn't he? And we often get shocked. I just can't work it out. Yeah, it must be chastisement. What am I doing wrong? You know, but he did say that we will. And, and many of the other things, we often forget those promises of the word. Turn to Luke chapter 24. But when we're close to him, when we're seeking him, like the ministering women, these ministering women, they're up early in the morning, up early, seeking the Lord, a good example to others, good example to all of us, these women. When we're doing that, we're in a position to then be easily reminded. Look, we're all going to forget. That's the truth. Look, you can't memorise the whole Bible. Yeah? Um, look, unlike these kind of... Look, it's a lot bigger than the Quran. Have you ever come across those Muslims that try to tell you that they know people that have memorised the Quran that proves it's the word of God? Anyone had that? Yeah? Yeah, I've had a couple like this. They're like, there are people that have memorised the whole thing in Arabic. It's, a, it's God's word. It's like, no, you, you know, look, people have memorised Shakespeare. People have memorised some pretty bad songs out there and many other things, right? doesn't mean that it's the word of God. And it's a lot smaller than the Bible. Okay, you're not memorising the whole Bible, okay? You can try. Good, good idea to try, but you won't, you won't succeed. So what happens, though, when we're close to God, though? When we're up early? When we're, when we're doing the things of God? 
when we're, when we're taking it seriously, when we're men of God that are going, yeah, I wanna, I wanna be in church, I wanna be there, I wanna, I wanna be up reading my Bible, I wanna, I wanna be doing the things of God, what happens? Well, Luke 24, like these ladies here, when, we're, when the women are like these women of God here, Luke 24 and verse five says, and as they were afraid and bowed down their face to the earth, they said unto them, why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke, spake, sorry, unto you when he was yet in Galilee. This is Luke 24 and verse 5 and 6. And as they were afraid and bowed down their face to the earth, they said unto them, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee. Sorry, did I tell you this to turn to Luke 24? I did, didn't I? Okay. Um, okay, and we just, we just read that in Matthew 17 as well, didn't we? Just the same thing he said. He said, And the third day shall rise again. Yeah, or, or we saw, sorry. Sorry, we saw earlier in, in Matthew 17 about the Galilee where he says the third day he shall be raised again. They were exceeding sorry. That was Matthew 17, verse 23. So he's saying, remember how he said this. Then he says in verse 7 of Luke 24, saying the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. They remembered his words and returned from the sepulchre and told all these things unto the eleven and to all the rest. So that's one of the reasons why church is so important, isn't it? Because... Be, look, being around God's people is important. Reading our Bibles time and time again is important because then you're able to be remembered of God's words. When you're, when you're close to God, when you're trying to seek God, when you're doing the things of God. Not like, like I said, like we, we had, you know, people before they used to talk a good game, act like they were so godly and holy. And, and you know, some of these people I can just remember, just absolute clowns. You know, they'd, they'd turn up, just, just, you know, saunter in, like act like just you know holier than nows and they were here we'd end up ended up kicking most of them out act like complete idiots and 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 they they talk the talk but really they're not really close to god and when you're close to god you'll know the words of god then you'll be reminded of the words of god you'll be reading your bibles you hear it and you can then apply it to your life here they remembered his words and, and we want to remember his words and they remembered and back in Matthew 28 they were then able to go and tell the others so they remembered they heard it they heard the words of God and then they're able to go and tell the others verse 7 says and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead and behold he goeth before you into Galilee there shall ye see him lo I have told you so Jesus had already said this in Matthew 26, hadn't he? And, and you could turn to Matthew 26 quickly. Before Peter's famous last words said in verse 31, Matthew 26 and verse 31. Then saith Jesus unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. So now the angels are saying the same thing. Here he told them this, and look at verse 8, and they departed quickly from the sepulchre with fear and great joy, and did run to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hell, and they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Now, you may remember in John's Gospel when Mary Magdalene is told not to touch him. Anyone remember that? Okay, so you, you can read through it, and you can go, oh, wait a second, these guys are worshipping and holding his feet. Mary Magdalene was... was told not to touch him in John's gospel what's going on here then well the meeting with Mary Magdalene happens before this point so in between the angels at the tomb and then here at verse 9 so they see the angels at the tomb then we've got verse 9 here but there's a point in between where Mary Magdalene sees the Lord Jesus Christ turn to John chapter 20 while you turn now I'm going to read Mark 16 9 which says now when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week he appeared first to Mary Magdalene out of whom he had cast seven devils. Now, we don't see it in Matthew's account, but it does help to explain the, the, what seems to be a discrepancy here. John 20 and verse 11 goes into more detail, though. It says, John 20, 11, But Mary stood without at the sepulchre, weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulchre, and see two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had said, thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. Now, this is now after the meeting with the angels. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. 
Jesus saith unto her, Mary, she turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master, Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father and to God, and to my God and your God. So why couldn't she touch him here? Why couldn't she touch him here, but they could soon after in Matthew's Gospel? Anyone ever wondered that? Well, well, and then obviously after when he sees the disciples, remember he's saying to Thomas to put his hand in his hand and his side and everything else. Well, turn to Leviticus 16 to help understand this. And this for me is amazing. When you read this in, it all marries up. It is absolutely amazing. So pay attention to this part of it. Turn to Leviticus 16. <clears throat> Leviticus chapter 16. He just said, touch me not for I'm not yet ascended to my father. And then we've just seen in Matthew's gospel straight after that they're holding his feet and worshipping him. Well, Leviticus 16 and verse 1 says, And the Lord spake unto Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered before the Lord and died. So remember, they offered strange fire. These people were killed by the Lord, uh, Aaron's two sons. And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron, thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not, for I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. Thus shall Aaron come into the holy place with a young bullock for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat, and he shall have the linen breeches upon his flesh, and shall be girded with the linen girdle, and with the linen mighty shall he be attired. These are holy garments, therefore shall he wash his flesh in water, and so put them on. So he needs to make sure he's completely clean first, yeah? Completely clean. He's, he washes his flesh in water and then puts on these, this holy clothing. Verse 5 says, He shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats for sin offering and one ram for burnt offering. And Aaron shall offer his bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make an atonement for himself and for his house. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to, the, to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. This was a picture of what was to happen with Barabbas, isn't it? Okay, so this is a, a picture many, many years before, I mean, you could say 1,500 odd years before, of what was then to happen with Barabbas. Verse 11, And Aaron shall bring the bullock of the sin offering which is for himself, and shall make an atonement for himself through his house, and shall kill the bullock of the sin offering which is for himself. So, unlike Jesus, Aaron wasn't sinless. He had to make atonement for himself. He had to make atonement for himself then to be able to do this. Verse 12, and he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before the Lord and his hands full of sweet incense, beat and small and bring it within the veil. He shall put the incense upon the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony that he die not. He shall take of the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward and before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle of the blood with his finger seven times. So he's sprinkling this blood upon the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring his blood within the veil and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock, okay? Sprinkle it upon the mercy and before the mercy seat, okay? With the, the, the one which is a sin offering for the people, obviously representing the Lord Jesus Christ, yeah? So the physically washed and spiritually cleansed high priest sprinkles the blood over and in front of the mercy seat, okay? And he shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions and all their sins. So shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remaineth among them in the midst of their uncleanness. And there shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goeth in to make an atonement in the holy place. Okay, so it's important there's no one else there until he come out and have made an atonement for himself and for his household and for all the congregation of Israel. He shall go out unto the altar that is before the Lord and make an atonement for it and shall take of the blood of the bullock and of the blood of the goat and put it upon the horns of the altar round about. And, and he shall sprinkle the blood upon it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and hallow it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. When he hath made an end of reconciling the holy place, the tabernacle of the congregation, and the altar he shall bring the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him, all, remember this is a scapegoat, all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited and he shall let go the goat in the wilderness. It goes to show that Barabbas wasn't just a bit part, was he? Barabbas was a key part of this as well. This is a picture of Barabbas' scapegoat he represented 
I think the forgiveness of all mankind through the blood of Christ, yeah, the representation of that. And then verse 23 says, And Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of the congregation, shall put off the linen garments, which he put on when he went into the holy place, and shall leave them there. So hence the tainted grave clothes being left. Yeah, that's why the grave clothes we see in the other gospels being left to one side, with Jesus then wearing his holy garments, yeah? Okay, nearly done on this. I hope you, you, you're kind of following with this. Verse 24 says, He shall wash his flesh with water in the holy place and put on his garments and come forth and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make an atonement for himself for the people. And the fat of the sin offering shall he burn upon the altar. And he that let go the goat for the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his flesh with water. And after coming to the camp, remember Pilate washing his hands before the multitude who let go the scapegoat? Verse 27, and a bullock for the sin offering and a goat for the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place shall one carry forth without the camp and they shall burn in the fire their skins and their flesh and their dung. The burning being a picture of Christ ascending into hell. Right, turn to Hebrews 9 with all of that in mind, okay? So Jesus is fulfilling these ordinances, okay? But it's no longer on the earthly altar, is it? The earthly holy place. And this is the point now. So with all of that in mind, all of those things which were all a picture of what Jesus Christ is about to do once and for all, Hebrews 9 and verse 1, Hebrews 9 and verse 1 says this. Hebrews 9, 1. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. Okay, so the first covenant, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, had ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary, but the sanctuary was worldly. Okay? Now jump forward to verse 6. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost is signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances, imposed on them until the time of reformation okay and many people think about those verses a lot that's why we understand that the, the, the dietary things are done away the the washings the carnal ordinances okay now look at verse 11 but christ being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is say not of this building okay so it's not a physical one neither by the blood of goats and calves but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place not the earthly one the 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 one in heaven having obtained eternal redemption for us where was this holy place well jump forward to verse 22 and almost all things are by the law purged with blood and without shedding of blood is no remission of blood is important okay the blood of christ is important verse 23 it was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these so it's not the blood of bulls and goats, it's the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The worldly sanctuary was a pattern of things in heaven. That's, do you remember in the book of Exodus, when they're building this stuff, it's precise, isn't it? They have to do it exactly, it's not just, oh, it's something similar, it's a pattern of what's in heaven, okay? Okay, then it says, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, nor yet that he should offer himself often, as a high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others, for then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once in the end of the world, he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He died once and for all, didn't he? Okay, once and for all, then verse 27, and as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this a judgment, so Christ was up once offered to bear the sins of many and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. So Jesus Christ, basically, if you're wondering, well, what was all that about? Was basically, he was both the sacrifice and the high priest, okay? And, and he was oh, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, we see, don't we, in, in Hebrews 7, I think it is as well. And he went up into heaven to sprinkle his blood on and before the mercy seat that we've just that was being pictured back in Leviticus uh, 16 I think it was and here then we see Hebrews explaining what that all was about basically so what Jesus Christ did is after he died after he went to hell which is what all that burning was a, was a picture of 
He's risen from the dead, but he's gone and applied that blood to the mercy as that high priest, the blood of the offering to the mercy seat in heaven. That's why I said in John 20, 17, touch me not, because he had, it had to be 100% purely clean, like that priest had to be cleaned, bathed, and everything else sanctified away from the people and everything else. So when he first sees Mary Magdalene, he says, touch me not for I've not yet ascended to my father who's going to heaven to apply this blood once and for all, the eternal blood, the eternal sacrifice, but straight after he returns and they're then able to hold his feet. That's why you see one, in, in one gospel he's saying, don't touch me. And in this gospel, he's there at his feet, holding his feet, worshiping him. But take away from all that and just think, like, you can't make this stuff up. How did he fulfill all of that? And so many of those prophecies, so many of those pictures are all being fulfilled in the death, burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Absolutely amazing, isn't it? Absolutely amazing. And I, I don't even know how that even starts to work, how, how it all just shapes in together. Okay, so back in, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 28 and verse 9, it says this. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying, all hail. And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Why at his feet? Because he's God and he requires worship. Okay, he's God and he requires worship. And Jesus Christ didn't stop them worshipping him, did he? Because he's God. Okay. Verse 10 says, then said Jesus unto them, be not afraid. Go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee and there shall they see me. So they're told again. This time by the now resurrected Jesus, go meet him in Galilee. Okay, so we've seen pre-resurrection, we've seen the angel telling them, we've seen now Jesus Christ telling them, go to Galilee. And I say that because it seems that they still hang around in Jerusalem. And it can be a bit confusing when you're reading the Gospels until you put them all together, what exactly happened and when. But, but it seems to me that they were basically in that upper room on the same day that he rose. And then eight days later, whether it's the upper room, whatever locked room it is, they're still in this room eight days later. When he comes in again, through the door, by the way, with his new glorified body, and, and he says to him, you know, what's going on? And John 20, verse 26, you don't have to turn there, it says this, and after eight days again, his disciples were within. And Thomas with them, by the way, they haven't just nipped up to Galilee and, and trotted back again, okay? It's a bit, of a bit of a long journey. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, peace be unto you. So when they do eventually make it to Galilee, because he's basically, he, he comes, he says, peace be unto you. And then we see like doubting Thomas and everything else. And he breathes on them, the Holy Ghost. The, there's then, when they go to Galilee, there's then this backslidden fishing trip instead of preaching the gospel. So even though they have that, they're encouraged, they're told what to do, they've been told to go there. They're then there having some fishing trip. They're meant to be up there looking for the Lord and doing the things of God. And, and Peter's like naked fishing. And let's not, you know, get onto that. But verse 11 here says this, so now when they were going, and that's the women he's talking about, that's these women, these holy women, okay? Behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priests all things that were done. Okay, so did the watch, the watch being the guards here, just say something has happened? No, they showed them all the things. Now remember, they've seen these angels passed out with fear, that there's been this earthquake, the stone's been rolled back, yeah? And by the way, that wasn't to let Jesus Christ out. Jesus Christ had already risen, okay? He didn't need that, he could walk through doors, okay? It, that, that wasn't the point, that was to show the women, okay? Okay, so they showed them all things. They showed the chief priests all things that were done. And then verse 12 says, and when they were assembled with the elders and take accounts, they gave large money unto the soldiers saying, say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while he slept. So what was their response to the truth, to the resurrection? Throw money at the truth. Throw money at hiding the truth, more to the point, yeah? And again, you know, not wanting to sound like a broken record, but has anything changed much with that? Throw money at hiding the truth. Throw money at hiding the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because look, you know, obviously I've talked before about, you get those people that don't really, at least don't accept and acknowledge they're wicked, okay? And we've talked about that we looked at like the works of iniquity in Matthew 7 and these people are still saying Lord Lord yeah and and this is obviously talking about it's talking about false prophets in the same passage about false prophets then we get to him saying you know all ye that work iniquity yeah which is a term for for these sort of false prophet work salvation but there are those out there I believe as well 
and I think they're different types because I think maybe maybe like the, the worst infiltrator types probably need to believe in themselves don't they because to be more at least convincing but there are those out there that just know full well they're wicked and they know full well the truth and they know full well they're just trying to hide the truth from others and that's what these guys are doing aren't they I mean they know they've just been told like what's happened there's an angel appeared the stones be rolled back he wasn't in the tomb you know, the, the people with, like, light, with countenances lightning and they're like, yeah, let's give some money to the soldiers and tell them just not to say anything. I mean, that is unbelievable, isn't it? But again, nothing's really changed because how much money is getting thrown at disproving God? How much money is thrown at all sorts of things, you know, teaching and promoting this nonsense, big bang evolution, retardation and the rest of it? And, and who, who's, who's throwing the money at it? All people that claim to believe in God. I mean, it's nuts. They're people that claim at least to believe in some sort of, at least the Torah to some degree, the Babylonian Talmud, yet they're throwing all this money, it seems, uh, hiding the truth of God, or at least the truth of Christ. So many of these people know. They know and they know who they serve. That's why the Bible calls them the synagogue of Satan. Because they know full because you can't get your head around it otherwise, can you? These people are full-on wicked and they're full-on trying to condition the world against the truth. And they throw money at it in all these different areas to try and discredit and to try and hide the truth of, of Jesus Christ. And what are they doing here? Blaming his disciples. Say ye his disciples came by the night and stole them away while he slept. And that's what they try and do now. They just try and, try and basically mock and scourge the disciples of God. The, the preachers, the prophets, you know, it's these cult leaders or it's, you know, whatever else. You know, you can throw something, throw dirt at them. And that's what the enemies of God do. So what, what can they do? It's like, well, we can't, what are we going to do? We, we need to cover the truth coming out of the word of God. So we'll just attack, attack the spokespeople. We'll attack, the, we'll attack the preachers. Just find something on them. Try and discredit them. Try and just give something to the people that makes them not really want to listen to them. Just find something, anything I can to criticise them. Anything I can to take them down. And then people won't trust what they're preaching. And that's what the enemies of God do. Okay, that's what the enemies of the truth do. And you've got to watch out for that. Sometimes they're subtle with it as well. Oh, I'm very subtle with it. He said in verse 14, and if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. Basically, don't worry, we've got the, we've got the politicians in our pocket. Yeah, don't, don't, if it comes to the politicians' ears, don't worry, we'll persuade him. We have ways and means of dealing with politicians. Yeah, we'll just encourage them into some sort of perversion, you know, or, or give them a bribe or both. Yeah, we'll deal with them. Don't worry about that. Verse 15, and what do these, these idiots do? So they took the money. And so many people will do that, won't they? So many people take the money to go against the Lord. So many people choose money instead of God in various ways, don't they? And, and what are these synagogue of Satan doing constantly offering that choice to people? You've got the money on this side and you've got God on the other side. And people fear the lack of money from choosing the Lord and choosing the truth. And they did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. And you could say as well, forget the darkness, the earthquakes, the prophecies, the eyewitnesses. Forget all that. You know, and these people are willing to forget all that because we've got some guys running around going, oh, yeah, yeah, disciples took the body away. Look, they were given so many chances, weren't they? So much they were given. To whom much is given shall much be required. And these are given more than anyone else, weren't they? Verse 16, then the 11 disciples went away into Galilee into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. Now, for me, this is much later now. Okay, so this is after the, the eight days later in the room. This is now, they're, they're, they're now in this mountain in Galilee. This is, for me, after the, the fishing trip as well. We're talking much later now. Verse 17, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, even the 11 remaining disciples, seeing the resurrected Christ, had a moment of doubt. And point being is that when you have your doubting times and people will okay that's just the way it is you're not alone okay it doesn't mean you're unsaved because you've had the odd moment of doubt look everything's kind of being thrown at you from all different angles trying to make you doubt okay and and some of them doubted and I don't think it's talking about because it was doubting Thomas is earlier on isn't it so this is later on it said some of them it didn't say one of them okay that's just some of the 11 disciples who walked with him who saw him who saw him resurrected they still doubted and that's what happens in life, doesn't it? However, when you doubt, what do we do? We should get closer to God, don't we? 
And then back to point number one is being in the Word of God, in the Word of God, early doors, you know, in church, early doors, just in the things of God, putting God first, and that will deal with those doubts as well. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. All power. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. And we're not finishing there because there are three parts there to that great commission, aren't there? And now, just a point here, when we talk about three parts of the Great Commission, you'll have those that don't do the first part of the Great Commission wanting to go on about there being three parts of the Great Commission, yeah? Or some will talk about the second part at least. No, usually they'll talk about the third part. But definitely number three they like to talk about. And I, I had this, I remember going into a church, um, you know, just genuine, hadn't been saved a long period of time. You know, I went in this church and was just like, yeah, King James, yeah, soul winning, you know? And it was like... That's only part of the Great Commission. And now in hindsight, the alarm bell should have gone doo 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 doo. You know, and then it was basically, well, don't worry about all that soul winning. We need to get him into church, really, was the main thing, wasn't it? Okay. And look, but there are three points to the Great Commission, aren't there? There are three parts, yeah? But parts two and three don't come without part one, do they? Yeah, you can't get onto parts two and three if you don't do part one. Now, what people will then try and do is go, okay, well, you should only basically try and find those that you think will do parts two and three. Hence, they just invite them into church because there's no point going and getting someone saved if they don't come to church. Disagree. There is a point in getting someone saved because then they're not going to help. Yeah? And it's nice going to a receptive place and getting people saved, isn't it? However, however, there are three parts. Let's look at the three parts. He said in verse 19, go ye therefore and teach all nations. So, what's teaching all nations? It's really, it's teaching them the gospel. Go, like we see if we compare it with Mark 16, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. It should be going to all people, shouldn't it? Okay, we should be going and preaching the gospel to all people, yeah? And, and everyone here is happy to preach the gospel, I think, to all people, yeah? He said, go ye therefore and teach all nations. And look, it is go, isn't it? It is go. He didn't say, look, stay here and teach all nations. He didn't say, welcome in all nations. He said, go ye therefore and teach all nations. And point number one on the Great Commission is going and preaching the gospel. And that's why we go and preach the gospel. That's why we go out and preach it. We don't just try and get them in because that's part of the Great Commission. Okay. Number two, though, is baptise them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. So point number two of the Great Commission is to baptise people, isn't it? And we want to encourage baptism. We want to get people baptised. Now, it doesn't mean that, we, that, that if people don't get baptised and we stop doing point number one. Yeah, we carry on doing point number one, but we try and encourage them to come and get baptised. Yeah? And notice how the baptism here is in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And I was just, I was just thinking that when I was looking at this, because you always get these, these idiotic, God-hating Muslims who like to come out with the whole Jesus never said he was the Son of God and all this sort of stuff. And there are obviously places. And, and, but here he's saying to baptise him in the name of the Father. And who's the Son then? Who's he saying? I mean, it's, it's just all over the Bible, really, isn't it? But obviously they're not saved, so they don't understand the Bible, you know? Um, but point being is to baptise them. We want to baptise people, don't we? Yeah, we want to get them baptised. We want to encourage them to be baptised. It is the answer of a good conscience toward God. It is the first commandment. It is part of being... That's how you're added unto the church, isn't it? Okay, so if you're coming to a church and you're not baptised, and we're talking about believers' baptism, then I don't know if God looks down and sees you as part, I don't think you're part of the body of Christ. Now, once you're baptised and you attend your church, you're part of the body of Christ, okay? So we've got baptism, and then we've got, then after that, we've got teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, along with you all way, even until the end of the world. Now, I was talking to someone the other day who was saying that they want, they're trying to encourage that multiplication and try and work on their discipling someone afterwards. And, and I go through different phases, I've got to admit on this, because sometimes it can be a bit kind of annoying when you're getting people saved and they're just kind of, they just don't want the things of God. A lot of people don't want the things of God. It doesn't mean they're not saved, remember. 
okay? And it can be annoying because you want to get them in a church, they don't. And some of those think, look, if they want to come, they're going to come. You know, and you just think, I'll just leave them with a load of stuff. I don't really, do we need to do follow-up and everything? Is that really, do I want to force someone to church? I just want to leave them to look into the stuff. I really encourage them to come. I really, when I get someone saved, I really encourage them to look into the stuff on our website, look into our New Believer series especially, because that covers all of that, coming into church and everything else. And the, the reality is a lot won't come to church, or at least, at least maybe they will in time to come because many people here, maybe it took them a while to get into a church, yeah? to get into coming to church, even having been saved and maybe growing at home or something else. Yeah? Okay, so a lot won't. However, I don't know, then I go through different phases and I think maybe, you know, because for some people I think there's a fear thing there as well. And they need to be encouraged that coming to church isn't somewhere where you're going to be tested on how much of a Christian you are. You know, and coming to church, you're going to feel like the odd one out because there's all these people and then suddenly you're this, eh, just sticky out like a sore thumb because you haven't been in church before. Now, I did have someone that, was, that, that had messaged, having got saved, that we got saved down the road and was talking about coming, was going to come on a Wednesday night. She thought maybe it would be a bit quieter. And you could just, she was just that display of fear of didn't really know what to expect and I was trying to encourage her I showed her like a little video of of what the church was like before trying to explain she said okay that's made me feel a lot happier more comfortable and then she didn't come okay and but point being that that look she was saved she wanted to come to church but there was a fear and anxiety of getting into church and I think we can allay that to some degree as well can't we and I think if you can maybe get a relationship with someone that you got saved, great. If you can somehow keep up some form of communication, if they're happy to and they won't, and some won't. Some will just be like, no, I'll contact you. You know, they're happy, they've taken the free gift and that's it. Now they're going to have, what a sad life. It'll be an unfulfilling life. But yeah, at the end of the day, you know, they're still saved. Yeah. But maybe we should, maybe look, I, and I think it's a case-by-case -case basis. I think there are people that maybe you know, maybe we should be trying to take details, trying to encourage more, trying to get, get you know, get some follow-up going more with them, trying to encourage. And, and whose disciple are they? If you get someone saved, whose disciple are they? For now, they're yours. So ultimately, the responsibility is on you. You get someone saved, follow them up, disciple them until you get them to the church. Now, once they're part of the church, now they're really, they become a disciple of the church. They become part of the church. But until that point, it's our responsibility there, isn't it? And we should try. At least, now look, the, the truth is, the reality is, especially when we're going on soul winning trips all over the, the you know, the kind of M25 area, look, the, the reality is a lot of people aren't going to get saved. Uh, sorry, a lot of people are going to get saved and aren't going to become disciples. That's the reality, okay? They're not necessarily going to come to church. They're not, they're not going to probably, you know, always want to. We're going to places where a lot of people, the truth is, and it's the truth, is that maybe a lot of people maybe don't have as much discipline in their lives in certain very poor areas for one reason or another. Maybe they're less likely to then, you know, be able to then start getting it together to be in church and everything else. A lot of the time you're knocking on a door and they don't seem to be able to pick the rubbish up off their front doorstep, you know, on their front, front path, you know, let alone get along to church. However, we still want to try and encourage, don't we, yeah? Want to try and encourage. Some will hear part of the Great Commission is what? Teach them to observe all things all things is that part of being saved no because what did john what did jesus say in john 8 31 then said jesus those jews which believed on him if you continue my word then you my disciples indeed we want to encourage them to follow all things to observe all things whatsoever jesus commanded however that doesn't mean that's got no that's got no bearing on whether they're saved or not okay but what happens if they start observing all things what's the ultimate goal they're going to go out and get other people saved. More people saved. That's the goal, isn't it? Pulling people out of the fire. Okay, so, yeah, something maybe, something I want to think about a bit more and think about ways of kind of being stronger with the follow-up here, how we can do that. I would like to, we talked a while back before, little cards are good, things like that. I, I want to think of some good ways of doing it um, without it being too weird, without it being harassing as well, but just trying to get that right. We'll talk about that uh, in time to come. And, and last point, when we go and do that, Jesus Christ said, lo, I am with you all way, even unto the end of the world. Okay? When you're, I, I believe that, that, look, yeah, he's with us. Yeah, look, at the end of the day, you get saved. Look, nothing can part us from the love of God, yeah? 
But when you're going and doing things for God, he's so close to you, isn't he? And we need him with us, don't we? And the more you do for God, the closer he is. And lo, he is with us always, even until the end of the world, yeah? And that's going to continue and continue and continue. It doesn't matter if it goes on another thousand years from now, Jesus Christ is still with his, with, with his children, with, with believers, yeah? With the sons of God, he's still there with us, yeah? Um, okay, that was Matthew chapter 28. And look, there are many places you could go with that. Um, and look, I, I don't know about you guys, I've really enjoyed the Gospel of Matthew. I think that's, you know, so much I've learned from studying through that. Um, I'll have a good, good think and prayer still about what we're going to do next. I've got a couple of ideas anyway. Um, and um, yeah, hopefully everyone's got a bit out of that series. And, um, you know, hopefully maybe if you made some notes and stuff as well. I know I've got kind of pages of notes on that, you know. And that's nice to be able to look back on and stuff when I wonder about passages. But um, okay, and um, on that, we're going to finish up in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for um, all the great great chapter finishing off um finishing off what is you know a great book of the bible thank you for that um well you know finishing off with a great commission and and that reminder that you're with us all way even until the end of the world and and thank you that you are with us thank you for all the many teachings that we've received out of your word um out of that that book of the bible out of those 28 chapters of, of matthew's gospel there um i pray that everyone here will just apply those bits and pieces that have really spoken to them over the last sort of 30 or so weeks uh, to their lives. I pray that um, you just help us all grow, help us all be strong, help us all, um, you know, want to go out and, and, you know, for us as well to, to, you know, observe all things that you command us, Lord, and not just to pick and choose, not to treat it like a pick and mix. And one of those things is to, you know, like we spoke earlier, earlier in the chapter, just, just being up early and and, and respecting you, respecting your house, respecting your word, respecting just turning to you first thing and, and, and helping that shape our lives and just put you first in all the other areas of our life, Lord. And um, we, we, we thank you for, for this church. We thank you for um, the fact that we're able to have Bible studies on a Wednesday. Um, we, we pray that you just help us to choose a good book that's going to really, um, really edify the church and something that your, your church here in the UK needs to hear. Um, help everyone to get home safely and to return on Sunday. In Jesus' name, pray all this. Amen.